Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. Isn't it good to be with family? It's so good to be here today. I've been looking forward to today. Started to think on Thursday. I was like, man, it's just, just the joy and just, just the comfort that comes with being around church family. And it's a saying that, that I say all the time, and, and, and I, I want it to be, I know it's true in my heart, but I want it to be true in your heart, that I want us to be the family that you would tell your family about. I want us to be the family that you're not afraid to tell your, your, your unchurched or your dechurched friend about. And, and I believe that we're becoming that little by little, step by step. Well, we're continuing in our series called Authentic, and the... The tagline for this, just in case you've missed it, the umpteen times that it's been said, to be authentic, as we've termed it, is, is really where faith and real life meet. Now, before we jump into James, now if you're a go-getter, you can go get into James 1, because that's where we'll be in a minute. Don't care if you use your Bible. If you don't have a Bible and you want to look at a Bible, we have them kind of spread throughout the place. If you have a phone or a device or iPad or whatever new fandangle thing they have now to find that. Look at a Bible app. We don't really care how you get there as long as you do. But while you're flipping, I'll tell you a story. Um, whenever I was 19 years I had just, no, I was 18 when I went in, but when I was 18 years old, I went into the Navy. And uh, the Navy got, it gave me an opportunity to do a lot of things, one of which was sin a lot. And uh, I'm not proud of that, but it's true. And another thing that I, I had opportunity to do whenever I was in the Navy for those four years, I did get to see the world. And I, on behalf of, of the United States Navy and other sailors like me, I just want to say thank you for providing me to see the world because it was your tax dollars that allowed us to see things and to uh, spend a lot of your money. So um, one of the places I got to see quite a bit, and it was actually kind of like they call it kind of the, the armpit of Europe. And if you've ever been to Naples, Italy, you know that it is kind of that. Um, as a matter of fact, I was talking to some people from Italy um, a couple of weeks ago. I actually made, men, made reference to the conversation I had last week uh, during my message, which is available online. And when I was talking to them, it was funny because they kind of come from out in the village, some, somewhere out in like a, a smaller village of Italy. And as soon as I said Naples to them, both of their noses kind of scrunched up like, yeah, they even knew it. And they're from there. So it, it was kind of crazy. But in, in Naples... One of the key things that I remember about Naples actually wasn't the city because it was very forgettable. And it was one of those things you want to go into Naples and then get on a train and leave it. But I remember specifically that from Naples and from that experience, I had an opportunity to look at Mount Vesuvius. Now, Mount Vesuvius is, is a volcano. And I have a picture of the top of the volcano. There it is. Uh, I didn't see that view. That would be pretty neat. That would be a helicopter, and I was like an E2. I couldn't afford to eat, let alone fly in a helicopter, take that kind of tour. But, but this is Mount Vesuvius, and Mount Vesuvius erupted in, in A.D. 79. Maybe if you're a history buff, you already knew that, and you're like, yeah, I could have already told you that, which that's awesome. But in A.D. 79, Mount Vesuvius erupted, and... The view that, that I had from my experience in Naples was, was one of those things. It's like looking at, at, at this geographical phenomenon that a volcano is. And, th and to think that that volcano was responsible for taking so many lives. One of the things I found out later through this, through 
Mount Vesuvius and really this whole experience is there was a city, specifically the city of Pompeii, that was destroyed. And this is the ruins of the city of Pompeii, and that's Mount Vesuvius in the background. What's incredible about this city is it was lost for centuries. It was lost. People didn't even know. They're like, where is this, the old city of Pompeii? They didn't even know where it was. But the way that this city fell is so unique, and this really had me dialed in. And I was reminded of this actually by a popular song, a song that's popular in pop music today. And it's a song called Pompeii by the artist named Bastille. And this is what it says, and this speaks into the situation, what was happening in the city of Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius erupted and the ashes began to fall and bury that city. This is what it says in the song. I was left to my own device. Many days fell away with nothing to show. And the walls kept tumbling down in the city that we love. Great clouds rolled over the hills, bringing darkness from above. That's talking about the ash from Mount Vesuvius as it's burying the people of Pompeii. But if you close your eyes... Does it almost feel like nothing's changed at all? And if you close your eyes, does it feel like nothing has changed at all? Like you've been here before. How am I going to be an optimist about this? And they sing it so much better than I just said it. It's like a tongue twister for them. But he says, how am I going to be an optimist about this? We were caught up and lost in all of our devices In your prose as the dust settles around us and the walls kept tumbling down in the city that we love. Great clouds rolled over the hills bringing darkness from above. And then it says something that speaks into the text in James. It says this. Oh, where do we begin with the rubble or our sins? Where do we begin With the consequence of our sin or the desire that led to the sin? Where do we begin? See this, I love it when when culture actually kind of gets things right. The condition that was happening, and this is just something I've read about, this could be not absolutely true, um, like Bible true, but I believe it is historically true. The city of Pompeii, they were far enough away from Mount Vesuvius, they thought they were good. It's not going to get us because they had seen it for all those years and thought, you know what, it's no big deal. Then it started to erupt and nothing changed about their situation. They didn't change. They didn't run. They didn't hide. They just continued to live their lives. And this was known to be a very immoral city. It's renowned as being so. So as Mount Vesuvius is erupting and as Everything about that landscape is changing. They just pretended that everything was going to be okay until the ash started to fall. And the ash buried them and hid that city for centuries. So let me ask you, I can't ask them, where are you going to start the process of change in your life? I know we all want to change. We all came here with some, uh, even if you're a non-Christian and you're de-churched or unchurched or wherever you fit into the mix or maybe you're just a, a sold out follower of Jesus and you've been following to the best of your ability, we all want to change. There's, we either want to change to, to 
to have peace? Or we want some outside source to give us peace. We want hope or we'll try and create our own hope. I believe in our hearts we want to know what the truth is. And yet some twisting of of our sin natures, we start creating our own truth. But I believe in all of us, we want to change. So where are you going to start? Are you going to start with the consequence of your sin? Which is just the, the... The faulty marriage, the jacked up kids, broken relationships, where you hate your work. Maybe your boss doesn't like you. Maybe you're not the, the, the worker that you should be for the cause of Christ. Or are you going to start, and I hope we do, are you going to start with the desire that leads you in one direction or another, either closer to Jesus Christ or farther away from Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we just pray that your goodness would just shine upon us. That we would just be washed by your word. We know that your word is useful for teaching, training, and rebuking us. And Lord, we all, me included, I need sharpening through your word. I need what Jesus said. I need to be sanctified by your word. I pray that you would sanctify us in your house today. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. James 1, starting in verse 12. Starting in verse 12. Now this, this section of James, and I would tell you before we get into this, this section of James is drawing out several examples of trials that we face through the human existence and just the human experience. So this this text in the flow, it's much in the flow of what we started in verse 2. So when he talks about in verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, this is one of those trials. Last week was one of those trials. What do you do when you have a lot and what do you do if you have very little? Those are both trials. They're unique trials. This gets to the root of of every one of us. And what my hope has been all week long is that this word today would just, in in some way, would just rip you, rip your heart open so that you would see maybe the thing that God has been wanting you and He's been pressing into you to change, that you would see the root cause that's driving you to do the things that you do. Verse 12. James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, he writes this in this letter to the scattered believers. He says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Think how great this is. We need this reminder, don't we? We need this reminder because we have a news media that tries to dissuade us, and I don't care what news outlet that you listen to, trying to dissuade us from joy. Because the purpose of every news outlet is not to spur up joy, it's to spur up money for them through advertising. Did you know that's the purpose of the news agencies? Did you know that? It's not about getting the news, it's a matter of getting the money. If you didn't give them money through advertising, you'd have no way of knowing what's happening in the world. So they shape the news with that mindset. But the Word of God is timeless. 
And James writes to us, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. This is such a comfort, just a, a comfort, no matter what's going on culturally, wherever the, the condition of the country is, whatever country you live in, this is absolutely true. Blessed is the man or the woman who perseveres under trial. When they're tried and they do the right thing. When they ask themselves in their heart of hearts, when they're being tried or tempted in a certain way, when they sit back and say, in this moment, what would Jesus do? He says, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Man, it's incredible. Verse 13 by the way, if you kind of grew up in Baptist church, you would say that this text and what I'm about to say is meddling in your life. That's what you would say, and it's true. Verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Verse 14. Get this, please. But each one is tempted when? By his own or by her own evil desire. He is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows, but He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we may be a kind of first fruits of all He created. Of all He created. This is, uh, the content creates such tension in us because it just unloads on us that we have a personal responsibility. So I don't want to go to us first. First, I want to kind of give you some attributes of a God who loves us, who's merciful, who's sovereign. So this is what I want to say. And, and this would be the God who gives the crown of life and also the God who gives every good and perfect gift, knowing that it's from above. Because our God, point number one, is our God is sufficient. He is sufficient for everything that you need. Every, every desire that Satan seeks to twist within your heart and your mind, he is sufficient to draw you out of it. Our God is holy. He guards his holy reputation. His holiness is the standard for believers' behavior. His holiness is the standard that we should seek. That's why we need the absolute authority of the Word of God. That's why we need it. Because knowing that, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, that the Word of God is inspired. It is God-breathed to us to change us, to make us, to mold us, to chink the sin and decay away from us. We need the Word, the washing of the Word. 
Because holiness is what He seeks. It's not just our happiness. We know that we can have happiness. We see that in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. When it says blessed, one of the, one of the ways that they translate that word is happiness. So sure, we can have happiness, but at the core of all of us, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is seeking holiness for your life. We see that in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. We see that in Leviticus 19 and 2. There is no one else who is holy like God is holy. There's no one else. There is no other standard of holiness that has ever existed or will ever exist as the standard of holiness of our God. He will not tolerate sin. He he cannot and He will not allow sin to be before Him. He is righteous. His righteousness is absolute as it says in Psalm 71 verse 19. He rules out of this righteousness. He is righteous in everything that He does. So if there's any chaos in the world, God did not bring it about. He is not about chaos. He is about order. He is making all things new. He can take any heart, any mind, any culture, any government, any any political system, and He can redeem it. He is righteous, and he can do so out of, out of his sovereignty. He is the only sovereign, 1 Timothy 1.17 and 1 Timothy 6.15. And he has a plan, amen, he has a plan for his people, and he is currently carrying it out. Right now, God is working out his plan for you, Believer. He's working out his, his plan for you. You're not forgotten in the mix of, of, of God's economy. You're not just on the, in the margins. You are front row. You are at home plate. He is, he is waiting for you to do what it is that you're supposed to do by an act of obedience. And he is loving. See, oftentimes when we talk about God, we just say, God is loving. 1 John 4 says that God is love. So we say, God just operates out of His love. But you know what? God is loving. But He's also righteous. He's also holy. He's also sovereign. And He's also a God of wrath and judgment. And when I look specifically in the Old Testament, when I look at the way that God judges sin in the Old Testament, this is before grace. But when I look at that, I see a side of God that I never want to experience for myself. And I don't want you to experience for yourself. God has many attributes, more attributes than what I just told you. But if we don't understand a a more full spectrum of the sufficiency of God, we're going to look through a very narrow lens. And as soon as we believe that God doesn't meet that need out of that narrow lens, we will turn from His goodness and His grace and the showering of His mercy and we'll lean to something else. And then we will fall. We will fall. Is what it says in verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. No one should say, There should be no one who commits sin and says, God led me to do it. That is an absolute lie from Satan himself. That person could be convinced that they have done it, but they they have deceived themselves by Satan himself. Make no mistake. God never tempts anyone to sin. We see in this text that temptation comes from the evil desire that rests within us. The second point, and perhaps the biggest point of today's talk, is this. 
Our personal accountability is fastened to our moral responsibility. If you have a worship guide, you can fill these blanks in. Our personal accountability is fastened to our moral responsibility. You are accountable for the things that you do or the things that you do not do before Almighty God. There's no loophole. There's no blaming mama. There's no blaming daddy. There's no blaming the church you used to go to. It's the church that you left or the church you vowed never to attend again. You can't blame any of those things. Anytime that we sin, we have to take into account our own deeds. Our own anger, our own slander, our own rage, our own bitterness that's festering up within us. We can't blame it on someone else because our personal accountability is always, always, always fastened to our moral responsibility. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, these things are so intrinsic to to a Christian's experience. So there's no more blaming a political system that if we vote in somebody else, everything's going to be better because if we don't change the human heart, it's not going to get any better. Ever. We're not longing for better days of of, of things that happen politically in our country. We're not longing for those for better days. We're longing for the day that Jesus Christ comes again or He raptures us to be with Him forever. If you're a Christian, those are the days that you long for. Because the days are getting progressively darker. So make no mistake, you and I, I'm I'm very much accountable to this too. Our personal accountability is faster to our moral responsibility. There's this debate in culture right now, and really it's a trap. They go back and, and you talk about certain people who, who lend a certain type of lifestyle, specifically the hot-button lifestyle issues of today. And they say this, is it nature or nurture? Who's heard that before? Raise your hand. Please, raise your hand. Is it nature or is it nurture? And you know, the way that that question lends itself is a trap. Because what they're wanting to do is, if they say, well, it's nature, then the excuse is, that's just who I was made to be. So then, in essence, they're blaming God. So they're saying, you know what, it's, it's not my, I'm just, I'm just living out who God created me to be. So they're saying, it's nurture, or excuse me, nature. But the other side of it is this, or if it's nurture, they say, no, 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 it's nurture. Um, it wasn't nature. I wasn't born this way, but I've just, I kind of, I became this person. My lifestyle just kind of changed, and I just kind of became who it, who it was that God wanted me to be. And what we're, that is really a trap. Because in one way, you're blaming God if you say nature, and if you say nurture, you're blaming someone else. But I would say this, spiritually speaking, the answer is both. The answer is both. Because you've been given a sin nature. So the reason why we have a proclivity or a lending to sin is because you have a sin nature within you that's being redeemed. You have sin that's being redeemed within you. You Maybe if you're a Christian, you've been justified. That means if you were to die right now, that you would go to heaven. You've been justified. Although you're not completely purified, you're not completely righteous, but when you get to heaven, it will be imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ onto you and that you would be in heaven. But you've already been justified. You're good. Washed by the blood of Jesus. But if you're still here on earth, you're not exactly who Jesus wants you to be. 
we're becoming that person through the process of sanctification. So you have a sin nature, and those sins have to be ripped out. It tells us in Galatians chapter 5, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another, so that you are not to do whatever you want. That means you don't always have the right thing to do within you. That you have to have outside sources. And, and glory to God, we're going to see this at the end of this talk. God, there are outside sources. There are people around you right now. There's circumstances around you that God is providing to help you out of these the temptations and these, these wrong desires and all these things that maybe are starting to trip you up. But our flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. We live right in the middle of that. We want to do right. And yet a part of us maybe does right and then at times we do wrong. And yet the truth is not found within us. So that we can just do whatever it is that we want. So when somebody says, well, is it nature or is it nurture? It's both. Because it's nature. It's within your sin nature. But we also know just from the human experience even, even a, if you're a non-believer this morning, you know this to be true. You know that, that you can nurture people into other sins. You know that there can be corrupt families where it, it's just this influence. We, you see the statistics. These, these were such incredible statistics for me, just the, some fatherhood statistics I found earlier. Many studies have shown that children where fathers are actively involved in their relationship. Actively involved. This is not like a, a religious study. This was totally a secular study. That these children have a higher reading level and they have fewer behavioral problems. And a father's physical care in infancy leads to lower cases of cognitive delay. It means the thought process. They can kind of put things together. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not advocating that women, that, that you moms, you're not important. You absolutely are. But there's such an absence in our culture right now of fathers. There, there are fathers who, who, were, who were there in a moment, but then bolted, and now mom is left to raise the kids. And she's left to raise kids with two hands tied behind her back. And it's like culture's just saying, you know what? Do as good a job as you can. So, are the issues in your heart and the issues of our day nurture or nature? It's absolutely both. It's absolutely both. And we see statistically, there's so many more statistics I could give it. But I, I want to say this as well. And especially when there's a tragedy, they, somebody will go through and they'll, say, they'll either say, God made me do it or they'll say, Satan made me do it. That's not true either. That's not true either. Satan can't make you do anything. Do you know that? He can't make you do anything. Well, I did it. I ate that chocolate cake again. Satan made me do it. Satan made me do it. No, the reason why you ate that chocolate cake is because you like chocolate cake, right? It had 13 layers, and you were like, I want every one of them. can't say Satan made me do it. Look at the text. What does James write? When tempted, no one should say God has tempted me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Okay, great. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away by his own 
evil desire. He's dragged away and enticed. These words, dragged away and enticed, one is a hunting metaphor and one is a fishing metaphor. We have any fishermen in here? We have a few. I tend to not like fishermen. I really don't. True story. I can love you in Jesus, but as a fisherman, I've got issues with you. Thank you for raising your hand. Um, We can pray later if you want. But the reason why I don't is because I'm a horrible fisherman. Horrible. I've gone out with people who were like an epic fisherman, bass tracker, spent thousands and thousands of dollars on rod and reels, and it doesn't matter. I've gone out with these people, and I've been on the bow, which is the front end of the boat, Navy guy. They've been on the stern, which is the back of the boat, Navy guy. And we'd have all these whole things, and he's like, hey, here's what we're going to do. We'll start with, you know, you go to the bow, I'll go to the stern, and uh, and we'll just fish. And he'll give me the, the tackle, the rod and reel, and all these things. And, and I'm the guy. I could be on the front or on the back, and he, the, on the opposite end, they're just tearing it up. I mean... Taking pictures, may as, it may as well be put on TV. I mean, just amazing. Bass pros wanting to put them in their place, you know, the whole nine yards. And I'm catching minnows or nothing, you know, using the same thing. But experience I had with a, a guy by the name of Bruce, had an opportunity to talk to Bruce a couple weeks ago. And it's just experience I had with Bruce is we're fishing and, and he's just tearing it up. But then, but then his fishing got to be slow. So I'm, I'm on the other end of the boat. And I'm not catching a thing. But I see him back there. And he's like, he's back there rigging up something else. And, you know, you're a good fisherman. That's what I don't like about you is what I'm getting ready to say. Is he's back there rigging up something else. Reels it out. He's tearing him up again. I'm up there catching nothing, right? N- nothing but a bad attitude. That's all I'm catching at this time. The thing about a fisherman is this. A good fisherman always knows the right bait. They do, right? A good fisherman. Out of the out of the fishermen who raise their hand, we could go out fishing, and if you're a really good fisherman, you'd be able to look at the temperature. I'm probably going to slaughter this, just so you know. But you could probably look at the temperature, uh, barometric pressure, the the last time it rained, time of day that it is, and you'd be able to look at the water, and you'd say, yeah, we'd be able to use this kind of bait. And I'm like, I'm throwing out a worm. I mean, I have no idea what to use. <laughs> but if you're a fisherman, that's what you do. And you know the right bait. But I want you to know this. What James is talking about with this fishing metaphor is... Satan knows the right bait for you too. He knows. He knows the level of temptation. He knows you. And he will try and he'll try and he'll try. The other metaphor is a hunting metaphor. And anyone who's tried to to escape from the power of sin knows that it's like trying to pry open the mouth of a lion because you've been... He's took a chunk out of you, and you're trying to pry the mouth open so you can escape. And the other word, when he says bring dragged away, mentally I have this image that we are the hunted. Satan is the hunter. And when we, when we do the wrong thing, make the wrong choice, when the desire has been conceived and it's given birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, it gives birth to to death, when these things happen, we in essence are being dragged away as the hunted. So Satan can pull us away from godly people. He can pull us away from the things that are bringing us life. The things that, that just, ah, oh, that just bring peace to our life. And Satan's like, you know what? I want to pull you away from those things because he doesn't want you to have abundant life. And the way that he does it is on the level of desire. On the level of desire. 
Proverbs 23, verse 7. It says this, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Sounds very philosophical, and it kind of is. So he thinks in his heart, so is he. So let me ask you this. What is it that you want in life? What is, it that th- what is the thing? What is the thing? And really there should be one thing. What is the thing that you live your life for? What is it? What is the thing you live your life for? Is it just to be a better mom? I want to have kids who, who just, when they're 25, that they can come home and it feels like home. Is that, is that the purpose of the goal of your life? Maybe for you, you're thinking, you know what? I know that I have to work, but I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can for about 40 or whatever years, and then my goal is, my purpose is, I'm going to have a day where, where, where I'm just going to walk away from this job, and I'm going to be able to do whatever it is that I want to do. So what you're trying to do, your purpose is, you're trying to work to do whatever, whatever it is that you want to do. Or maybe your purpose is, you know what? My number one purpose in life is I just want to have a healthy marriage. Maybe for you, students, maybe you think, you know what? My, my purpose in life right now is so that my parents would not be on my back. I'm trying to help you here. Those, those are, are, are good purposes, really. But if that's... When you look at this, this verse from Proverbs 23, verse 7, when you look at this and he says, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. If the one thing that you think of in your heart is any of those things, they're wrong. Because the number one purpose for your life should be to glorify Jesus Christ. Because as it says, if we seek him and his righteousness, then all other things will be given to us, is what it says in Matthew 6:33. Not that those are bad things. It's just not the best thing. And what we lose when we, when we strive for anything else other than Christ, what we lose is a chunk of the abundant life that he's promised. The temptation, verse 14. But each one is dragged away by his own evil evil desire when he's, when he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Uh, Point number three is this. Satan is on the hunt for your joy. He is on the hunt for your joy. When you are tempted by your own evil desire, when you're tempted, because that sin nature is in, it's just in, it's intention, for lack of a better word, with the Spirit of God that's wrestling within you. Just know this, that the source of that is Satan and he's on the hunt for your joy. So when your desire, when you just kind of, you just let go of a desire and a sinful desire and you just give way to those sinful desires, that is Satan himself trying to hunt you down, trying to drag you away and trying to entice you that his way is better than God's way. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us this, Be self-controlled, Christian, and alert. 
your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Love this metaphor. It's so true. I don't know about you, but in my life I've been, I've been a Christian for about 21 years. Be 41 at the end of this month. I'm accepting gift cards, food. No, not food. We're on like a meal plan. No food. I don't want to be tempted, okay? But out of my, out of my years that I've been a follower of Jesus, you see, the amazing thing is, in that, in that whole experience, some of the sins that I had had in my life, I mean, God just took them out. It was just like easy. Like it was almost like I didn't have to do anything. He's just like, you know what? You're, you're not going to cuss like a sailor anymore. No pun intended. You're not, you're not going to do that anymore. I didn't have to pray long about that. Honestly, I, I think, I, in my heart, I think I prayed one time. And it, it was just like, hey, okay, you have victory over that. Awesome. And, and there were some other things that, that I'd pray about. And I would just say, God, could you, could you take, man, this is just, I'm overwhelmed when I do this. I can't believe that I do this. And you know what? He just takes it away. But the longer that you're a Christian... The more those things that were on the, kind of on the surface, they kind of give way. But the longer you're a Christian, then we realize that we're in for a battle because then we get into the deep-seated issues of our heart. And those, sometimes, oftentimes, it's a fight to pull those sins out of our life because we've, we have given way to those desires and those temptations for so long that our will has convinced our mind that we deserve it. Our will has convinced our mind that, that it's okay. Our will has convinced our mind that that's just the way that I was made. But it's those things that bring the deep-seated change. And that's what I long for in my life. God's still wrestling me for sins. There are still things in my life that I'm having a really hard time letting go of. Some came easy, some come difficult. I want to be free from all of them. Now, the, what you see in this point, that Satan is on the hunt for your joy, this is why legalism doesn't work. Some of you, like myself, had years of legalism. This is the reason why legalism does not work for a follower of Jesus Christ. Because if you look at, at this text, it says, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. That means that it's something inside of us that has to change, not something on the outside of us that needs to change. And legalism says that there's going to be imposed rules upon you, and as soon as you do the right thing, God will love you. But the truth of the gospel is this, I love you and I'm going to change you. Not change and God will love you. The, just the gospel message, the pure gospel message, there is no legalism. And I, and I realize how difficult this is because oftentimes it's a person standing on a stage just like this with a microphone just like this that it's imposing legalism upon people just like you. But legalism doesn't work because legalism forces you to do something on the outside, but it never gives a way to change anything on the inside. This is the reason why Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law so harshly in Matthew 23. Just listen to the way it is. 
Matthew 23, verse 25 through 28. Listen to this. This is out of Jesus' seven woes in, in the Gospels. And anytime you hear Jesus and the word woe, woe. Right? It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, he says. First clean the inside of the cup and the dish, then the outside will be clean. Will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, he says again. Listen to what he says about these quote-unquote religious leaders next. You are like whitewashed tombs. Think of that. It's whitewashed. It's polished. You pressure washed it. used all the right stuff. used the right chemical. It's, man, it's looking great. But you know what that's a sign of? Death. And that's what he's saying. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. See, folks, you can change your drinks. You can change your clothes. You can change the music that you listen to. You can even change the people that you hang out with. You can change all of those things. And I'm not saying you don't need to. But you can change all of those things, but those are all things on the outside. But if you do not become right with Jesus Christ and allow Him to really go back to that place of desire, and you ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do? If you don't go back and wrestle with that question when desire is about to overtake you, when you're about to be enticed and dragged away, if you don't go back to those moments, you will never be changed. And you'll be forced to try things on the outside to make holy things on the inside. And that is an impossible feat. That is why legalism does not ever work. That's the reason why legalism works against the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel says change comes from the inside as the Holy Spirit comes within you and it comes from the inside, but legalism says you have to change the inside so that God will love what's on the inside. You have to change on the outside so God will love you on the inside. That's also the reason why moralism doesn't work. Try harder Christianity. Well, here's what's going to happen. I know that I'm tempted with lust, so what I'm going to do is I'm not going to go, I'm going to avoid these situations. I'm, I'm just going to, uh, I'm tempted with lust, so I'm just going to, I'm not going to, I'm not even going to watch TV. Because there's so much of that on TV, but what you find yourself doing is, oh, now we cut away from the TV, but now you, now you can be enticed by the computer. Or now, and this is even with married folks, you struggle with lust. You know that even happens within marriage? So then all of a sudden, it's like, now you wrestle with this, and now you're trying to put these demands on your husband or your wife to do things, perform for you, and doing all these things, and that is the sin within you, and now you're trying to impose a certain level of moralism Saying, you know what, I'm doing the right things. I'm trying to be the right person. Now you be the right person to meet my needs. That's not a gospel change. That's something on the outside, and you're trying to bring about that change. That's the reason why with issues of anger, rage, malice, slander, lust, adultery, all of these things, 
You can, you can change your environment, but if you don't change your heart, if you don't allow Jesus Christ to change your heart, you're still going to seek the same evil as before. That's why I've heard many, many stories this, about 10 or 15 years ago where youth groups, where youth pastors, I don't know, I don't want to pick on Keith. He's been a youth pastor for a while. Maybe you did this, I don't know. If I step on your toes, I hope you wore steel toe boots, I don't know. This is why years ago, youth groups, there was like this, this demand, bring all of your secular music into the church and we're going to burn them. Bring them in. Say, man, if it's secular, it's bad. Well, you know, perhaps maybe you were part of a youth group or a church where they went and had a bonfire. It's like, I'm burning all my music. I'm, you know, I'm burning this and I'm burning my Petra. I got to burn, you know, all through the 80s. It was like the worst year for years, decade for Christian music, true story, my opinion. Um, but you can change all those things, but if you don't change the heart, what you're trying to do and what those, those leaders were trying to do is say, you know what, if I change your environment, I'm going to change your heart. But you know what happened with those youth groups? Then they just started to save up their money again to buy those CDs. Or now, because their heart was never changed, they may have burned the tapes or cassette tapes or CDs however, or whatever generation you're in, and now they're getting them all on iTunes. Do you know why iTunes? Because I can have it on my phone and nobody else knows. How about we as Christians, we go back to ask the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? What would the Holy Spirit allow me to do in this situation? Does he want me to change this? Great. But don't think for a second that you can just change your environment, that it's going to change your heart. That's what the religious leaders were trying to do in Matthew 23 that you see on the screen right now. That's what they're trying to do. They're like, you know what? We want to impose these rules. They were trying by the level of their morality, but Jesus calls them liars and hypocrites. Did you catch that part? They're trying by their own level of morality to say, you know what? I'm propping up myself. Look at me. Now you need to be like me. We have, really, the, the tension of this text, I think, rests right here. It says in verse 14, But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Trial, there's a fill-in for your worship God on this as well. Trial can lead us into temptation, into sin, and into death. Every trial, especially the desires that are deep-rooted within us, they could take us, and this is right from the text. This is a trial. This temptation can lead us to sin and to death. Absolute, just death in a marriage, in a relationship with your kids, death in your in your your, your ability to change, death, and so many other things. Not just talking about physical death. But then there's another path. The other path is this. The trial can lead, and testing can lead to perseverance and can lead to maturity. The trial and the testing can lead to perseverance, Christian. In your maturity. And in that maturity is change. So let me ask you this. I've got some really, really good news to give you in just a second. So when, when you have something that you're struggling with, are you trying to just 
Take care of yourself. Try harder Christianity. Your own moral good. You're trying to outweigh the, the moral scale of your goodness and badness. Are you trying to do that? Are you trying to say, you know what, I'm just going to change my environment and then you impose legalism upon yourself? Because I'll tell you, I, I am opposed to all legalism, so you're not going to hear legalism from me. Are you trying to do that? Or by way of contrast, are you asking the right question? What would Jesus do in this situation? Because that leads us to a path that we're either going to try and into legalism, moralism, and the absence of abundant life, or it's going to lead us in the direction that you see on the screen to where we're going to learn that the trial and the testing is teaching us perseverance and maturity in our walk with God. And we will never, ever be sinless. But the longer that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you should sin less. Here's the good news. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. That means the same things that you're struggling with somebody else is already struggling with or has struggled with. It's not new to God. It's not new to the, to the human experience. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That means, Christian, that you're not on your own. Now, what would he send or what could he send to help us in these situations? In these situations, when you're being tempted, one of the things that he sends is at first the Holy Spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit and he says, you know what? This is against God's law of love. This violates God's law of love. He sent his Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit residing within you. You can suppress the Spirit. You can, you can push it away. But you have the Holy Spirit residing within you. So the first thing that He's given you, and it's just been implanted upon you at the day of salvation, is He's given you the Holy Spirit. That is the first thing that helps us to, to endure temptation. But when you're tempted, He will also provide a way out. And one of the ways He provides a way out is by His Holy Spirit. Another way is by a message just like this. And you have a choice Sunday after Sunday or if you do some self-feeding on sermons in between the week, you have a choice. Am I just going to listen to this and allow the word just to leave or am I going to allow this word to take root? But make no mistake, these situations just like this are, are God's opportunities to help you avoid temptation. Which is why you need to be taking notes. Which is why you need to pray before you get in here. Which is why you need to sit in here and not mill around during the middle of a sermon to distract someone else. You need to be sitting here soaking in the Word of God. Not because it's my Word, because it's God's Word. And because in the very moment when you're out milling around or going to the bathroom or seeking to do whatever it is that you want to do on a Sunday morning, when you do those things, you in your heart may miss the very thing that God wanted you to come for. Or perhaps, and what's even worse, is maybe by your milling around, you're actually inflicting upon somebody else's experience. And let's not do that. When we come to worship, let's be ready. Let's, have our, let's, let's be prayed up before we get in this place. Let's sit in the seat and listen to the Word of God. 
See, God has provided many ways out of your temptation. Sometimes it's just a friend with a gentle whisper of saying, Hey, brother, sister, man, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. I know where that road leads. You don't want to do that. And sometimes it's a brother or sister who's pleading to pull you out of that sinful situation. Sometimes it's a whisper and sometimes it's a shout. Sometimes it's while you're reading your Bible and it's just the Word of God because it is alive. And it cuts to the heart of every situation in us if, if we receive it well. And it can just cut to everything in our life. And the Word of God provides a way out. But in closing, let me... We're going to finish with a song and the band can come up right now. I'm going to, I'm going to end this talk with a question. And ultimately it's a couple questions. But the main question is this. What are you going to do when desire and temptation to sin occur in your life? What are you going to do? Are you going to turn the blind eye to it? Are you going to try and just do a little bit better because that's always worked in the past? Are you going to try and just put some rules upon yourself or, and all of those I would say are faulty, or are you going to ask the simple question? I think ultimately it comes down to this. Ask the question, what would Jesus do? Because I think if we're honest and we do a real self-evaluation through a couple questions, what you'll see on the other side of that is those temptations will eventually subside. Change will happen. God will be glorified. And you will have abundant life.